lot to cover. So let me go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll get, we'll begin. Father, we give thanks to you for the opportunity to gather together as your people this morning. People who are called out to be holy, to be righteous, um, to be a light to the world around us. And I pray that you'll help us to be uh, just that. Grant us strength and, and empower us to uh, walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, uh, as that is our ambition. And Father, I pray that uh, during this time this morning, uh, you will give us understanding and help us uh, with some uh, guidelines to better understand and interpret uh, the Old and New Testaments. And I pray, Father, that this time will be a blessing to all and that uh, um, we will have uh, even more tools to study your word uh, with. And I pray that uh, you'll be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there are some handouts um, on the back on each side. Should be plenty of them. So if you need one, go ahead and grab one of those handouts. So we are in week three of our class. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've considered some of the basics of Bible study. In weeks one and two of our class, we walked through the inductive Bible study method, observation, interpretation, and application. Or to put it another way, what does it say, what does it mean, and what does it mean for me? Uh, so this morning we're going to consider some of the unique principles uh, that we need to know in order to faithfully interpret both the Old and New Testaments. And these principles or, or navigational guidelines, as I'm, as I'm calling them, will serve as some interpretational guardrails uh, that'll keep you on the right path to correct interpretation. So... Let's start with talking about in interpreting the Old Testament. Um, when I was young, uh, my brother had an FFA project uh, where he raised uh, 50 broiler chickens. And uh, one Saturday, uh, we sat down to butcher them all, uh, just the way our dad had taught us. And so... We each began uh, to do what we thought was right according to what we'd been taught and each one of us trying to help the other brother do it right as well while we're doing it ourselves. And uh, it can be tricky uh, after you get into it a little bit, but at first it's fairly straightforward. But if you cut in the wrong place, uh, you might have far too small of a piece that no one else knows what to do with and you've you cut in the wrong place and you end up with a mess uh, that can't be easily fixed because once you cut, you're, you're done. Uh, and so it's been said that interpreting the Old Testament is a bit like being watched while you carve up a, a chicken like that. It's, it's fairly, fairly easy to start and everyone has an opinion with how to approach it. And so nevertheless, despite the challenges, I don't know if that... Um, <laughs> illustration resonated with you or not, if you can follow me with it, but um, I was thinking that maybe I could help you understand that better, but anyway, um, everybody's got an idea about how to best approach interpreting the Old Testament, so we're going to, despite those challenges of interpretation, it remains God's Word, and in fact, most of our Bible is made up of the Old Testament. So we're going to walk through six navigational guides to help us humbly examine and rightly interpret Old Testament texts. Uh, now, some of these navigational guides that we're going to cover can actually be used and should be used in regard to interpreting the New Testament as well. But, but these guides are particularly useful when interpreting the Old Testament. So they are context, covenants, Canon, character of God, character of man, and Christ. And you're going to see those in your handout. So the first one we're going to cover this morning is context. 
Um, this one is particularly important for the entire uh, Bible, not just the Old Testament, but it's our first navigational guide uh, by which we're going to examine and understand the Old Testament this morning. And we talked about context during the last two weeks as we discussed the inductive Bible study method, and we'll keep referring to it throughout the course. Um, understanding any biblical text begins by reading it carefully in context. Most errors uh, of interpretation come about uh, because we don't understand the context well. Who is the author? Um, what's the, uh, the date that he's writing it? Who's the audience whom he's writing to? Um, what's the author's intent? Um, what genre is the author writing in? Is it historical narrative? Is, is it prophecy? Uh, is it wisdom literature? So looking at uh, the verses in the chapter, in the book, in the context of which it is written, written is uh, extremely important as you are studying. So number one, context. Number two, covenants. Another key uh, navigational guide in understanding the Old Testament is understanding the covenants. So throughout the Old Testament, we are introduced to many covenants. Um, a covenant is a formal agreement between two parties with obligations, regulations, promises, and stipulations that had to be kept if the covenant were to remain uh, firm or in force. Once again, a covenant is a formal agreement between two parties with obligations, regulations, promises, and stipulations that had to be kept if the covenant were to remain in force or to remain firm. Um, as MacArthur and Mayhew point out in their book, Biblical Doctrine, the vast majority of covenants in the Bible are, number one, unconditional and non-nullifiable. Um, Microsoft Word says it's not a word. That's an error. Um, <laughs> They are unconditional and non-nullifiable in that once the covenant is ratified, the covenant must be fulfilled. Uh, and number two, they are referred to as everlasting. So the vast majority of covenants in the Bible are unconditional or non-nullifiable. And number two, they're referred to as everlasting. So the unconditional covenants, uh, I've... I've uh, typed them out there for you, uh, the Noahic Covenant, um, a promise to provide stability to nature after the flood, a re reissuance of the command to Adam uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, um, uh, a fear of man is put into animals, and then in addition, animals are now um, able to be used as food for man. Um, uh, man's life is re reiterated as being sacred, um, capital punishments installed, and God promises to never destroy the earth with water in a flood ever again. So that's the Noahic covenant. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant, um, uh, holy nations called out with three great promises, a promise of land for Abraham, uh, descendants for Abraham, a seed, uh, and then universal blessings for all of the nations through Abraham. So that's a, just a general synopsis of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, the priestly covenant, which a lot of people don't th think uh, through. It's not one that comes completely to mind. But um, that's because it's, it's in a small portion of scripture. But nevertheless, it's a, uh, it's a, a unilateral, um, unconditional, non-nullifiable covenant, uh, the priestly covenant. It's a covenant of peace. Uh, this covenant of peace was given to Phineas. Uh, if you know, recall the story, Phineas uh, was zealous for God and went in and uh, slayed a couple uh, people who were um, committing an immorality right out in front of the camp uh, without a question or hesitation. And so God rewarded him with a perpetual priesthood, an eternal priesthood for his, him and his descendants. So that's in Numbers 25. Um, the Davidic covenant, uh, God promises a kingdom in, in David's line that would last forever. 
So uh, through David, there would always be a king. Um, And then the new covenant, uh, God promised descendants and nations that would come from Abraham and that nations would be blessed through him. And God promised a perpetual priestly line to Phineas. And God also promised a perpetually, uh, a, a perpetual kingly line through David. But what good are descendants, land, priests, and kings without a people who love God? And so the new covenant is an unconditional, eternal covenant whereby God enables and empowers his people to serve him willingly and to remain in his blessings. He places his law within them, uh, writing it on their hearts, as we find in Jeremiah. He will forgive their iniquity, remember their sin no more. Um, And the new covenant is based unconditionally on the I will of God as you'll see in those in the passages that are referenced there behind the new covenant. Uh, There is one conditional or temporary covenant uh, that I've got listed there, and that's the Mosaic covenant. This covenant uh, was bilateral. It was conditional and nullifiable, being contingent on Israel's obedience to God. Um, Jesus fulfills the demands of, of the covenant and established the new covenant with his blood, therefore basically doing away with the Mosaic covenant. Covenant. We have a new and better uh, covenant. Uh, so if you uh, remember going through Hebrews, a lot was talked about that there where uh, Jesus fulfills that. These are the biblical covenants. These are biblical covenants since they are explicitly found in Scripture. Now, some theologians uh, assert that the biblical covenants should be understood through theologically derived uh, covenants, such as the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. Um, They would also add an Adamic covenant, um, calling and really linking that closely with the covenant of works. Um, These those types of things are not actual covenants because they're not specifically said to be covenants within God's word, Um, and sometimes there's no sign of the covenant. There's no promise with those covenants, uh, even though. They will show you where they've been derived, uh, their derived covenants. Um, there are biblical truths associated with all of those derived covenants. I don't want to uh, say that's not the case. Um, it's just that we would stop short of affirming them as covenants. So, uh, covenant theology would create a construct for the entire Bible. Um, with a covenant from the beginning, the Adamic covenant, all the way through the end, and say that when you interpret the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, you must look through the lenses of these covenants in, in order to understand the Old Testament scriptures properly. We would disagree with that. Covenants are important. That's why we're talking about them. We, you need to know that they're there. You need to know when you're reading a certain portion of scripture is this related to one of the covenants? Because there are several covenants throughout the Old Testament. It's really important for us to know this. But we would disagree with the opinion that you have to look through lenses um, to find out what the Scripture says. We, we come to the Scripture, letting the Scripture uh, explain to us what it is, understanding in its context, understanding that this might be talking about something that's happening during a covenant, And then that informs our understanding, our broad understanding, or if you will, our theological grid of the scripture. Um, We don't look at the scripture through particular lenses, at least that's not our goal. All right. Um, So when we read the Old Testament, we should consider whether the passage being read is before or after or during one of these covenants and how it may relate to that covenant, if in any way. All right, I'm going to pause right there. Are there any questions or, or thoughts and considerations or even clarifications if you'd like to make one?
absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, Mosaic Covenant covers a lot of the Old Testament uh, and a lot of things that the, the people of Israel were supposed to do. And that particularly does not apply to us. Like we're not supposed to, the, the children of Israel weren't supposed to, um, I think, weave linen and wool together, right? And that's not, a, that's not something that we have to follow today because that was under the Mosaic Covenant. So yeah, great, uh, great point. Any other thoughts or questions about understanding the covenants in regard to Old Testament interpretation? All right, let's move on. Number three, uh, canon. Um, the next Old Testament navigational guide is the, the guide of canon. Canon is uh, it's a term used for a collection of books uh, of the Old Testament and New Testament and the Bible. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, have you ever noticed how much the Old Testament is full of itself? Um, that may be a phrase you use about the Old Testament, but it is full of itself. Um, and what I mean by that is the, the later Old Testament writers frequently allude to or echo or refer to passages uh, earlier in the, the scriptures that have been written um, in the previous passages of the Old Testament canon. So uh, the Old Testament is full of itself. So, for example, the Psalms often refer to events that occurred within the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, the works of Moses. Uh, in Psalm 95, uh, he says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. So you're going to see references or allusions to previous passages. Um, the latter portion of the book of Daniel that we've been covering um, these are all visions that Daniel is having because what, what's he trying to do? He's trying to understand what was written in the book of Jeremiah, right? The, the scroll of Jeremiah that had already been written. Um, Daniel 9 to Jeremiah 25, uh, 1 through 12 there talks about that. This, it's helping Daniel interpret the prophecy of Jeremiah. So when you're reading any Old Testament text... Um, ask yourself, what if any conditions are made uh, to the rest of the canon? Uh, one of the keys to making these connections is using um, a Bible with a good cross-reference system. Uh, so um, modern Bibles, some of them are being published without a lot of cross-references. I would encourage you to continue to buy a Bible that has cross-references in the the middle of that Bible or in the column, uh, wherever uh, they're, they're situated on your Bible, um, I would encourage you not to just rely upon the app that is on your phone for, uh, for Bible study or reading. Um, I, I see people just bringing their, their device to church. Um, uh, there are good cross-references in Bibles that are helpful for uh, your study tools, um, so check those cross-references, use them to help you get a grasp of what the, the passage means in the, in the context of the entire canon. Um, I, I put a ref, uh, on the back uh, of your handout on resources, uh, I put a couple more um, resources that I used this week. One of them, uh, just for your information, Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, have you ever heard of that um, book? Uh, it's, a, it's like uh, three or four hundred thousand references to other passages within the scripture and it's helpful and it goes through it by book of the Bible. Um, so it's one of those exhaustive cross-reference books um, developed by a lot of different people. R.A. Torrey, famous one of them. Uh, so um, those are as a, another tool for you in addition to the cross-references within your Bible. So when you're interpreting an Old Testament text that is quoted in the New Testament, by all means, follow the New Testament's lead. Uh, ask yourself, how does the New Testament author understand the, this passage? Uh, impacting my uh, interpretation of it. So 
Uh, you know, the book of Hebrews is, is one big guide in interpreting the Old Testament as well. Uh, Jesus also helps us understand the point of uh, the Ten Commandments uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. And, and Christ declares all previously forbidden foods clean in, in Mark 7. So um, clarity brought about by New Testament authors, writers, uh, individuals regarding the Old Testament uh, canon. So as you make these canonical connection, connections, you'll begin to see what uh, the biblical writers themselves are highlighting. You'll begin to see prophecies, promises given in earlier portions of the canon that are fulfilled in later portions of the scripture. Um, another consideration regarding the canon of scripture is where the book is located within the canon. Uh, you may be aware of this, but the Hebrew and Greek versions of the Old Testament were not arranged exactly as we have it in our modern Bibles. Uh, the Torah, or the Pentateuch, is almost always at the beginning uh, of the various book orders throughout history. Uh, the first five books of the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, but in the Hebrew Bible, after that, it has the prophets, and the prophets are split into former prophets and latter prophets. And the former prophets they have as Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, um, and then the latter prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the twelve minor prophets. Um, this section is then followed by what is called the writings. Uh, the writings begin with all of the wisdom literature with Ruth uh, following Proverbs and Lamentations following uh, Ecclesiastes. And then we then find Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles to finish out the Hebrew Old Testament. Why do they have it that way? Um, what is uh, unique about that thinking through which canonical neighbors do they have what what do ours have what did they have then why was it important why did they put books of the bible together with other books um, uh, another uh, example the greek old testament um, order has uh, the pentateuch followed by the historical books as just as we have them um, except for Esther and Job, which they place at the end of the poetic books, which is the next uh, uh, grouping that they have. And uh, that consists of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Esther and Job. Um, the poetic books are followed by the prophets, um, the prophetic books, and actually start with the 12 minor prophets, followed by Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and the Old Testament canon closes with Daniel in the Greek Old Testament. Now, why would, why would they close it with Daniel? I'll leave you to think that through yourself. Uh, there, there may be something there regarding the 70th week or something like that that they're anticipating. So... Um, in, in, so in their book, uh, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, uh, Kostenberger and Patterson have some helpful guidelines for interpreting the Old Testament canon. Uh, they're as follows. I'm going to read them to you. Number one, uh, one of the features to notice when studying any biblical book is in its position in the canon of the Old Testament. In which canonical section is it placed? Which genre is it placed with, right? Um, what are its canonical neighbors? Number two, when a book has more than one location in the Hebrew and Greek canonical traditions, uh, like Ruth or Daniel, um, explore what, might, what possible light this may shed on its contents. Uh, for more than one significant theme or genre may be present in the book explaining its different locations. So think through that. Number three, explore how neighboring books in the canon interact and behave as conversation partners leading to a richer understanding of the meaning of the individual books. For example, when Esther's placed behind Daniel, right? Um, Esther and Daniel, very close in time period. Um, 
So what kind of conversations uh, partners there? Um, number four, do not limit your thinking about how the Old Testament may prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ simply to passages that can be labeled messianic. Uh, become familiar with the various strands of expectation that point to Jesus. All right. So that has to do with the canon. Uh, understanding the canon better can help you interpret the Old Testament better. Number four, the character of God. The character of God. Um, the next navigational guide is God's character. The, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, we need to take special note when reading Old Testament texts that speak of who God is and what God is like. And we, we can be tempted to rush to life application, but often the right thing to do is just to meditate on what the passage is saying about the Almighty God. Uh, far too frequently, we wrongly humanize God. Uh, we wrongly assume that God is like us in every way when he's not. So we need to ask questions. What does this text teach me about the character of God? Uh, for example, much of Psalm 90 uh, is simply a reflection by Moses on God's unchanging character. In verse 2 and 4, God is eternal and everlasting. In verses 2, 3, 5, and 6, he is sovereign over life and death, death as the mighty creator. In verses 7 and 8 and 11, he is a God of holy wrath. And in verses 13 and 14, he's a God of mercy, pity, and steadfast love, who is, according to verse 16 and 17, gloriously powerful and beautiful. And, and, and beautiful, yeah. So all of these thoughts about the character of God to, to sit and, and dwell on who he is. However, there are other passages that are less direct than Psalm 90, but also reveal much about the character of God that needs to be considered. So as you read through the Old Testament, ask what it reveals about the character of God for you. Um, the, there's a question in the New City Catechism that um, sometimes the songs I'll play for my, uh, my grandchildren, you know, if no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Um, it's to teach us about the, the holy nature of God and the nature of man and thus our need for a Savior. And so um, it's important as you read the Old Testament for us to ask what it reveals about the character of God. Um, when interpreting the Old Testament, uh, take note of, marvel at, and worship the God who is unlimited in all his perfections. Um, number five, the character of man. Um, here, it's going to give you contrast to the character of God, um, and that is another point of, of interpretation that you need to just think through as you read through the Old Testament you're going to read much about the character of God but you will also have much revealed to you about the character of man uh, in Genesis 6 5 we find a description of man by God uh, that causes regret in God and leads to his decision to judge the entire world with a flood uh, we're told that Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And as you continue to read through the Old Testament, you will be able to discern and establish a doctrine of mankind, a doctrine of his man's nature. You will find as Jeremiah did in uh, chapter 17 and verse 9 and 10 that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Why is this important? It'll help you understand the nature of man and therefore his need for a savior 
um, as you read through the Old Testament scriptures. And that leads us to our last navigational uh, guide to interpreting the Old Testament, and that is number six, Christ. Christ. Um, it is of this is a navigational guide of great importance. Uh, the Old Testament points to, foretells, lays the groundwork for, teaches about, uh, sets up, and previews Christ. And when we interpret an Old Testament text, we, we do want to ask a couple of questions, like, as you have in your handout, does this text point forward to Christ? And is this text fulfilled by Christ? Um, so look at Luke 24, 20, uh, 25 through 27 in your handout there. Um, here we have the resurrected Jesus secretly joining two of his disciples uh, as they walk on the road to Emmaus. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And now skip down to verse 44 there, where Christ appears to the rest of his disciples. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here Jesus teaches that he is spoken of and talked about within the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he chastises his disciples, his followers, for not seeing this. Slow of heart to believe. So as you read through the Old Testament, you need to ask if the passage that you're interpreting predicts, prepares for, points to, or reflects the person or work of the coming Christ. Reading the Old Testament with these considerations in mind is the right thing to do. Jesus expected that those who knew the Old Testament would know all that it said about the coming Christ. The Old Testament scriptures pointed to the Christ who was to come, the forsaken one of Psalm 22, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, pointed to the Christ. In Luke 24, as he says this, Jesus tells the, his disciples on the road to Emmaus, that the Christ was spoken of in Moses, in the writings, in the Pentateuch, um, in uh, the prophets, and particularly in the last reference in verse 44, uh, the Psalms. So in many portions of the Old Testament scriptures, there are passages concerning the Christ, and we need to have this navigational guide for us as we approach the Old Testament scriptures. Now, just a brief caution regarding this particular point. There are many who would say that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Uh, they would want you to find Christ in every verse of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, they would have you ask, how does this text point forward to Christ? Not does it. Um, assuming that it does. They would have you ask, how is this text fulfilled by Christ? Not, is this text fulfilled by Christ? Um, once again, a quote from Kostenberger and Patterson. Uh, the Old Testament is a canonical corpus pointing forward to Jesus Christ. We have this on the authority of Jesus himself. This does not mean, however, that this is all that the Old Testament does. It is sometimes assumed that a kind of Nothing but hermeneutic is required of a Christian reading of Scripture. But a consideration of the texts commonly re uh, relied upon place a question mark over that approach. Uh, the claim by Jesus in John 5.39, these are the very Scriptures, the Old Testament, that testify about me, is hardly intended as a global 
hermeneutical principle, but simply refers to the Old Testament as one among a number of witnesses, he says there in John 5, to him, which include his own words in John 5.31, his father in John 5.32 and 37, John himself, the evangelist uh, in John 5.33, Jesus' works, John 5.36, and Moses, John 5.46. There, there's nothing in the context that would indicate that uh, this verse, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, uh, provides an all-inclusive test by, the, uh, by which the validity of the Old Testament interpretations is to be judged. It does not assert that all the Old Testament does in, is point forward to Christ. Let me reread that. It does not assert that all the Old Testament does is point forward to Christ. Though that, that is one vitally important function, it does perform. Okay? So just a caution there. Don't go to the Old Testament expecting all of the Old Testament to be speaking of Christ. It's going, it may point to it. It may allude to it. Um, but it's not all of the Old Testament is not specifically about the coming Christ. All right. We finished our Old Testament section. Are there any questions about what we've covered so far? Okay. All right. Let's talk about interpreting the New Testament. So we turn our attention for the reign of our class to the New Testament. And when we interpret the New Testament, here are four more uh, navigational guides to remember. So um, in the New Testament, remember the basic genres. So the New Testament has several genres. Uh, the Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are a historical narrative account of the life of Jesus. Uh, the Gospels present Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of God to send a Savior for his people. Uh, following the Gospels is history, uh, the history book entitled Acts, which is a historical narrative account of the foundation of the church uh, through the apostles. And then following the historical book there are the epistles or the letters, and these are written in general to, to teach Christians. They're written to churches oftentimes, uh, but written in general to teach Christians which, uh, what it means to, to truly follow Christ. And the last genre uh, is apocalyptic writing, and that consists of the book of Revelation, which was meant to offer a vision of the end times to prepare believers for that day. So part of what it means to do your best in rightly handling the word of truth is recognizing the genre of the, the book or passage you're reading and letting it shape how you read, interpret, and apply the passage. And we'll talk more about genres next uh, class as we get together. Uh, number two, in the Gospels, remember to keep your eyes Fixed on Jesus. Uh, the New Testament begins with four Gospels, which are a particular kind of historical narrative. They are not exactly biographies of Jesus. Um, they are intentionally shaped to highlight the, the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, especially his death and resurrection. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson reminds us when you read the Gospels, don't lose sight of Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Uh, this principle guards against the tendency to first ask, uh, you know, what's this passage saying about me? What should I do uh, with this? Or whom I like in this story? Or who is so-and-so like in this story? Oh, that's like this person. Um, instead, we should ask, first and foremost, what does this passage tell me about the Lord Jesus? Um, so let's take for an example. Uh, please turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we'll take that for an example. The, the account 
in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness at the outset of his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 4. Verse 1. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had finished, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. The primary truth taught in this passage is not how to fight temptation like Jesus did. Right? That's not the primary truth taught in this passage. Uh, fighting temptation is a secondary implication of the text. But the main point is that unlike Adam and unlike Israel... Uh, Jesus is the faithful son of God. Adam, the son of God, was tempted in the garden and proved unfaithful. Israel, uh, God's children, uh, were tempted in the wilderness and proved unfaithful. Jesus, the eternal son of God, made flesh after going through the waters of baptism, was led out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights, was tempted and proved himself to be faithful. Uh, Jesus is not first and foremost our model. He's, he's first and foremost our substitute. So in this text, we keep our eyes on Jesus and we see that we have reasons to glorify him as the faithful and obedient son who from the outset of his ministry endured temptation and yet did not sin. And we, like, like Adam and like Israel, have disobeyed and failed. Where we've been tempted and given into sin, Jesus has not. His obedience is, is credit to us through faith. So when you read any passages in the, old, in the Gospels, make sure that you take careful note of what Jesus did, what Jesus taught who Jesus is, and what it means to be his disciple. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, what Jesus is in any of the gospel narratives, he always is. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. All right, number three. Um, in the epistles, remember the indicative imperative pattern. So about one-third of the entire New Testament is made up of epistles or letters. These letters represent one side of a, of a two-way conversation between the apostles who wrote them and their first audience. Uh, these letters are written for us, but they're not written to us. So one of the key questions when interpreting an epistle is what did this passage say to its original audience, its first recipient? And as you read and reread the New Testament epistles, 
you might notice a pattern. Uh, the commands and exhortations of the Gospels, like we, we call them imperatives, you need to do that, uh, always rise from the exposition of God's grace in the Gospel that we see in what we call indicatives. God has done this. So imperatives flow from and out of Indicatives. Indicatives give rise to imperatives. Because of this, then do this. Um, you've been forgiven. It's indicative. Therefore, forgive. That's an imperative. All right? uh, you've, you've been made holy through Christ. That's a, a declaration. Therefore, be holy in your conduct. That's a command. We see this in First Peter, uh, the First Peter passage I put in your handout. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But notice how Peter grounds this imperative to holiness in the glorious indicatives of God's saving call and his holiness. We're to be holy precisely because the one who called us savingly to himself is holy. God himself is holy. Our pursuit of holiness is then predicated on the holiness of God. If we're his children, we should strive to be like him in all our conduct. Uh, this indicative, imperative pattern is also common in the structures of a lot of the epistles. Um, if, you will, if you were here when Greg went through Romans, you'll recall that when he went through Romans, um, I believe all of chapters 1 through 11, there wasn't one single imperative. Is that correct, Greg? Almost Okay, all right. But then once Romans 12 hit, you have like an overflowing and abundance and amount of imperatives, commands that need to be obeyed. You've got this theological treatise or understanding of who God is that out of which flows the imperatives or commands of the rest of the book. You'll also see that in uh, pretty clearly in the book of Ephesians. So chapters one through three, outlining some of those high-level understandings of who God is and what he has done in and through Christ and who you are as a man uh, lost in your deadness and sin and then flowing out of that how we ought to live imperatively throughout the remainder of our lives. So, Learn that these patterns like this are in the scripture and be looking for them as you read and study through the epistles. All right, number four. Um, in application, remember what scripture is for. Studying the New Testament and the Old Testament is profitable for your life and for your doctrine. So we conclude with a reminder that our study of the New Testament should have the aim of obedience. Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that I have commanded them, you. Um, God forbid that we would be those who study the New Testament and gaze into it as a mirror and yet walk away unchanged and unaffected. So we should strive to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I think I put a passage of scripture in your handout there um, that talks about the effect of scripture and, and its purposes, right? Uh, to give reproof and to teach and correct. That's what its design is and that's what scripture is for. So as, as we finish out today, um, 
you may or may not have heard this phrase, um, the New Testament is in the old concealed and the Old Testament is in the new revealed. You ever heard that phrase? Heard that phrase growing up. Uh, It's not perfect phrase. It doesn't, uh, it's not all there, but I think you get the understanding. Um, The Old and New Testament are rich treasures of truth, but we must read and interpret them correctly. Um, Let's use these navigational guides as we study so that we understand the scriptures correctly, so that we know and understand God's great plan, so that we can know how we can be a part of that plan and therefore honor and praise our good, holy, and sovereign God. Uh, any, any comments or questions about the New Testament here and how we ought to interpret it with these navigational guides? I'll leave you with Ezra chapter 7, 9c through 10. It says this, The good hand of his God was upon him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statutes, statutes and judgments in Israel. The good hand of his God was upon him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statutes and judgments in Israel. Let's be like Ezra. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the opportunity to uh, look once again at some guidelines for how we ought to understand and interpret your word. Father, we pray that these Uh, guidelines will be beneficial for us as we um, look to study to show ourselves approved unto you Lord, not being something some like some people who neglect the study of your word the father people who hunger for it and thirst for it and want to dig deeply into it to know what it says and understand what it says so they might live holy lives unto you, obedient lives. And so, Father, we pray that you will use these principles uh, to guide us, to help us, and to help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We pray these things and ask them in Jesus' precious name.